Well, good morning, friends. I, I confess to you that as I try to contemplate life, I think in terms of word pictures, of metaphors and analogies. For example, I think about that great theologian, Forrest Gump, <laughs> who's known for saying, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Well, if you connect that to the following analogy, I think you'll see how it fits. Because I, I believe the Christian life is like a, a long-distance road trip. And the two are very applicable to each other. Traffic conditions can vary widely and can be very maddening. I'm curious if we have any honest people here today. How many of you would say you struggle at least a little bit with road rage? <laughs> oh, stupid people. <laughs> Cutting in front of me. Doing all kinds of crazy things. You're just tooling down the freeway and all of a sudden you feel your blood pressure rising. You start to mumble under your breath. People going too slow. They're idiots. The people going too fast, they're maniacs. And then you realize you're talking about yourself. Because far too often, that's exactly what you and I do. Yeah, if we're, if we're honest, ours is often an unrighteous kind of anger. But God's never is. As we do our drive-by of the book of Ezra... God was upset. We're seeing that today in chapters 5 and 6. He was exercising some righteous indignation. We left off last week with the traffic, if you will, having ground to a halt. The freeway had turned into a parking lot. Gridlock. Ugh. The work of reconstructing the temple had stopped for a period of 16 long years. And the Lord wanted to motivate his people to get back into gear. So he prompted his preaching writing prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to challenge the returned captives to get after it. Pause for application. You know, sometimes I think we stop working for God because we think he has stopped working for us. In our weaker moments, we wonder, does God even care about me? Does he really even know me? Yeah, he, he does. You're not, we're not, just the last four digits of our social security number to God. If you're in Christ, you are God's dear children. And God works all things together for good to those that love him, to those who were the called according to his purpose. As Micah Fries insightfully observes, God's silence does not equate to his neglect or absence of work. And John Piper adds, in every situation, every circumstance of your life, God is always doing a thousand different things that you cannot see and you do not know. And maybe, just maybe today, God will break through into your lives by preaching in the same way he broke into the early Israeli lives through the preaching in the time of Ezra. So uh, let's take the freeway off-ramp now 
to Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to back up to verse 24, the last verse of chapter 4 by way of segue. Here I go. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the sons of, son of Ido, prophesied or preached to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. What should happen when preaching a curse? We go on. As a result, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose. They took action and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. In our series so far, Pastor Pat has been borrowing from our series title, God Help Us, by filling it in with various applications. Today, as you've already seen, my theme is entitled, God Help Us Persevere. Anybody listening to me today say, yeah, I, I need help persevering in my Christian life. I need some encouragement. Listen to these illustrations. As a youngster, Walt Disney got fired by a newspaper because he supposedly had no good ideas. Both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates dropped out of school feeling like misfits. Albert Einstein couldn't speak until age four, couldn't read until age seven. As the boy inventor Thomas Edison was said to be so stupid, he'd never learn anything. And then one day, the light came on. <laughs> Rather literally. A young high school sophomore basketball player got cut from his team. But he persevered and became known as one of the best basketball players of all time. And his name is... Michael Jordan. You got it, young man. Be like Mike. If we would persevere, we need to understand three insights about this character quality of perseverance from our text. And here is the first. Number one, perseverance begins with hope. As a counselor, we're constantly trying to instill hope in the people who come to us. As a church, we're doing that. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Biblical hope does not include uncertainty. But it must include patience and perseverance. The biblical definition of hope is hanging on to a confident expectation of a better future. Our hope is found in the promises of God's word. We read in Hebrews, you have need of patience or perseverance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promises, Hebrews 10, 36. In context here, God told his people that the temple would be rebuilt. His providence would do it. He would pull it off. And in the end, he did. Now, a little backstory for these two chapters Potential opposition arose once again from a local unbelieving governmental official, just like it had previously, as we learned last week in chapter 4. In this case, it was a governor named Tatanai who questioned who had given authority to the Jews to begin rebuilding. You see that at the end of verse 3 in your text. Here it is. Who gave you a decree to build this house, to finish this structure? 
Anybody ever question you in life? That question could have deflated the Jewish leaders, but it did not. They simply appealed to the highest court of Darius. Now look at verse 5 and note the reference to both providence and perseverance. We start with providence. But the eye of their God was on the elders, just like he's on you today if you're his child. He was on the elders of the Jews, that's providence, and they, the pagan authorities, did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This implies that the Jews kept on building through the appeal process. That is perseverance. You keep going. Keep calm and carry on. That's the mandate for God's people. Just to remind you, Darius was the name of the king of Persia. That was the ruling empire at this time. And uh, Darius checked the decree from his predecessor, Cyrus, found it to be valid, and urged the temple reconstruction to continue. Providence was at work. Now, I, I want to give you an assurance that providence is at work in every Christian's life here today. Whether you can see it or feel it or not, he is at work. What's he trying to do? Have you ever perceived what he's trying to do? Is he trying to build courage in the midst of opposition? Is he essentially trying to develop stamina for the long haul of life challenges? Do you need hope? Then try on for size this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I love this. Hope itself is like a star. Not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but only to be discovered in the night of adversity. So look up to the bright and morning star the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, lest you become weary in your walk. Look to Jesus. So to get back on the road of rebuilding, we need to begin with hope. Secondly, number two, perseverance continues with humble holiness. And I say humble because a whole lot of people were involved in the rebuilding, but only a few people were mentioned by name and only a few people got credit. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 16, you'll see a local official, a pagan official who's named Sheshbazzar, who was given the credit for laying the foundation of the temple. When actually, it was Zerubbabel, the political ruler or leader of Israel, and Joshua, the religious leader, who took charge, and it was the, the, the grunt men of the Jewish workforce that actually pulled it off and, and did the work themselves. So as we look at this, we say, wait, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to be fair. And I know my own heart and the hearts of God's people well enough to know that oftentimes we feel like, like we're being overlooked in life. Maybe it's on the job, or maybe it's in the home. Or maybe it's at school, or, or maybe, God forbid, it's in the location of the church. But I want to urge you to be careful because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, James 4, verse 10. Proud people think they're indispensable. They can't do it without me. But I want to remind you that the cemetery is full of indispensable people. Yet the work always goes on. 
Here's my point. You will not persevere in the Christian life or in Christian ministry if you have to be the person who gets the credit. Hey, everybody, look at me. That's today's culture. The words celebrity and Christian are not synonyms. They're antonyms. They're opposites. There's only one celebrity. And who is his name? It's Jesus. We're here to worship Jesus, not ourselves. And God will use whomever he will, and sometimes he uses people and allows credit to go to people we wouldn't expect. In fact, it was a breakthrough day for me when I finally realized that God reserves the right to use people with whom I disagree. Imagine that. He's God, and I'm not. It's amazing how much can be accomplished for the Lord if we don't care who gets the credit, because it's all about him anyway. So ours must be a humble holiness. We've talked about humility. But where do we find the idea of holiness in this text? Well, as I read these two chapters over and over again, I could not escape the emphasis on the repetitious phrases referring to the temple, whether called the house of God, which is the most common reference, or numerous other synonyms. I counted up 28 references to this term. I mean, get a load of that, 28. And as a preacher of the word, it's almost like the Holy Spirit was shouting me, hey, Kurt, Kurt. Don't skip over the obvious. The book of Ezra is about my temple. Prioritize my temple. Talk about my temple. So I will. What was the temple? Let me do a quick flyover using three slides, okay? We'll start with this north, northeast elevation from Solomon's temple, which was previous, of course. More ornate than the one being built here in Ezra. You'll, you'll notice that there was in the lower left-hand corner, a brazen or brass altar where sacrifices were made, a picture of the cross of Christ, the ultimate sacrificial altar where our sins were paid for. There were labors, these little containers of water where the priests could wash their hands and their feet before they went into the holy place because holiness under the Lord is what he requires. Now we go to the second slide, and we see inside the holy place, the first room, three pieces of furniture. On the south side, there were 10 candelabra known as the menorah. Each was seven candlesticks, seven the perfect number of God. These candlesticks, these menorah, pictures the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. There were no windows in the temple. This was the light. Jesus provides the light. On the opposite side, the north side of this holy place, was the table of showbread, or the table of the presence. There were 12 loaves, six in one stack, six in another, each weighing about five pounds where the priests could eat them. It pictures, this bread does, how God sustains and provides for his people, the 12 tribes of Israel and all who come by faith to Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. And in a few moments, we're going to be partaking of that symbol of what Jesus provided for us in his perfect body. There was also the altar of incense where the people of God, through the priest, 
would offer their prayers through the incense symbolically to heaven. And then we go to the last slide. We go to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where once a year the great high priest would come to offer a sacrifice on the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, overshadowed by the wings of the cherubim, showing the holiness of God. The room was filled with holy smoke, with light. And the priest went in with fear and trepidation to apply the blood on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the fall of the year to make a sacrifice for the people to make atonement for their sins. This was the temple. In short, the temple was the place where God's people came to meet with him. It was the place of salvation, the place of worship, the dwelling place of God on earth. In New Testament times, King Herod enlarged and improved the second temple, the one built by Zerubbabel and by Joshua, but it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And Jesus not only predicted that destruction, but he used the play on words to talk about himself, his own impending death and resurrection. When Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And so he did in the gospel. I want you to stay with me. When the temple proper was destroyed, Jesus became the personal temple of God on earth. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, the logos, was made flesh. And we beheld his glory. That's the Shekinah glory. That manifest presence that was in the Holy of Holies, it was now in Jesus Christ because he is the God-man. It's made flesh and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the temple of God. Now, for the record, I believe there will be a future rebuilding of a physical temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, just as Bible prophecy predicts. And you see here in this picture... A remnant of that temple that goes way back to Ezra's time. To the lower right-hand corner is what we call the wailing wall. It's a retaining wall that remains from the time of that temple in Ezra. And some of you are going on the tour with Pastor Pat this fall in November. And you'll stand at the Temple Mount here at this very spot. And you will revel at what God has done and is doing even into the future. Some of you are asking, however, another question. Well, what in the world does this, this temple have to do with us today? And my answer may be the most important thing you're going to hear me say this morning. Listen carefully. If you've come to know Christ Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and I'm not assuming everybody here has, right now, Christ's spirit lives in you. Get this. You are the temple of God on earth right now. Whoa. You and we, 1 Corinthians 3 says, plural, we are the temple of God. So wherever you go, he goes. And whatever you do, he does. And, and that's rather astounding and maybe more than a little convicting. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your temple, 
which is God's, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Let me stretch you a little further. Think about this. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he did not come to Herod's temple, a stone structure. The Holy Spirit came to 120 temples of flesh, each marked up by little pillars of fire, indicating the Shekinah glory of God now indwells you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hallelujah. What he's done for us in the Savior. Let the Spirit speak to you right now. Take a look at your temple. How are you doing with your eyes? What you look at? Your ears? What you listen to? Your tongue? What you say or how you say it? Your mind? What you think about? Your hands and your feet? What you do and where you go? God is building a new temple in the Lord within you. The question is, will you yield to Him? He is a resident but he wants to be president, president of your life. We now come to the final step in our perseverance with God. Perseverance concludes with a holiday. Perseverance, if you will, has a payoff, namely in context. It concluded with the celebration of the completion of the temple and also the celebration of the most holy feast of Passover in the spring of the year. So let me now jump into chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, and you can follow along. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Down to verse 20b. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. That's an operative word, a key word there. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. You need to know that the Passover lamb referenced here is a picture of none other than the one we're going to celebrate momentarily, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He is the lamb that was set aside by God the Father to provide for us the redemption we so desperately need. He's the one who shed his blood, and we by faith, if we're in Christ, have applied his blood to the doorposts of our lives so that the death angel has passed over us and condemnation for us is no more. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, forever forgiven. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more, Hebrews 10 verse 17. But... We must personally apply the blood of the lamb if we're to be spared and forgiven. And the real question is, have you really done that? We must not only believe that he died to pay for our sin, but believe that he lives again and ever lives to make intercession for us. And if we truly believe from the heart, his spirit comes to take residence inside of us and make us transformed temples. So the question that you must answer, have you believed? And if you have, has it shown up in your temple? 
Richard Wormbrand, the famous Romanian pastor imprisoned and tortured at the hands of the communists in the 20th century, once said this, there are two kinds of Christians. Those who sincerely believe in God, implied through Christ, and those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. What's the difference? He says, you can tell them apart by their actions in decisive moments. You can tell them by what they do in their temple. R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, adds this. It's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another to believe God. There's a difference. The Apostle Peter grabs another analogy in 1 Peter chapter 2, 5, where he reminds his readers that Christ followers, and here's a simile, Christ followers are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. We're the temple of God to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in context today, we're to offer a sacrifice of praise from our lips. Verse 22, for the Lord God had made them joyful in the work of the house of God. Little instruction, as we go to the table of the Lord momentarily, I want us to celebrate today. I want us to be joyful. I'm not talking about Hallmark happy here, okay? I'm talking Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. He's the one that gives us energy for Christian living. God is going to complete his temple work in you. He is going to not only invest a little, but everything to finish what he has started. He who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion at the return of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, verse 6. And one final thought before we go to the tables. If you think about Israel, if you know your Old Testament, you know that they had to feel like a yo-yo in their earthly travels. I mean up and down the freeway of the Middle East. I mean, Abram gets called out of Ur of the Chaldees, ancient Mesopotamia, all the way to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. And then later his progeny, 70 strong, go down to Egypt, where Joseph has been sent in advance to spare them in a time of famine. And they stay there until, unfortunately, there arises a Pharaoh, a king who does not know Joseph, and the people of God are in captivity for 400 long years before Moses comes along, dispatched by God, to lead them out. And after 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they go across the Jordan River and back into the Promised Land, as detailed in the book of Joshua, where they possess the inheritance that God had ordained for them. But then the people of God fell into idolatry and he took them into captivity until our book when he brings a remnant back to the promised land. Whew. You may feel weary in your journey to the promised land of heaven. An illustration. In the bird kingdom, there are species of migrating birds who take long journeys. We see them flying overhead regularly. We don't know how they do it in the spring and the fall. They may take their cues from length of days, changes of weather. Some suggest they follow the sun or the stars or wind patterns. But one particular species called the Arctic tern holds the record for the longest migration. This little bird travels more than 43,000 miles 
every year from its nesting ground in the Arctic to its winter home in Antarctica and then back again. <laughs> it basically flies from one end of the earth to the other and then back again every year. And, and because it can live to more than 30 years of age, it can travel enough miles in its lifetime to go to the moon and back again almost three times. Wow. And you thought you were tired. <laughs> Scientists call this instinct. Hey, we know it's God. It's God. That put that in them. And the same God who put a song in these traveling turns is going to give you strength and a song, suffering saint, as you persevere toward the kingdom of God that he has promised for you. But it won't be by instinct. It'll be by the power of the Holy Spirit within you who reminds you like the Apostle Paul, I'm going to press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Christian friend, Keep calm and carry on no matter what. Persevere until you're made perfect in the promised land. And remember, more people, more like Jesus, will eventually and ultimately become all God's people just like Jesus. And there's our hope. We're going to pray and then do communion together. Instructions will be on the screen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you that soon our suffering will pass, though our song will last forever. And thank you for the body of Jesus, the perfect substitute, the shed blood of Jesus the perfect sacrifice for sin. Help us in this long journey of life to keep our eyes on the finish line, to keep our eyes on Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. As you're ready, you're welcome to come and get the elements.